Alright, let's continue on this Family Sunday here before Christmas as we push through into this overview of Romans now in chapter 7. You're going to look from verses 7 all the way through the beginning portion of chapter 8. Who will deliver me? Paul says when he writes to the Romans that the last thing in the world that he is is ashamed of the Gospel. Even though the Gospel says some things that are very difficult for the natural man to hear and accept. He is not ashamed. Instead, he says that he is eagerly obliged to the Gospel. A Gospel that is nothing less than the power of God unto salvation. The wrath of God revealed against men and the righteousness of God revealed when He makes propitiation for them. Ransoming back His people, purchasing our lives with the lifeblood of Jesus Christ. This is the Gospel. This is the gospel by which the one who is just in his judgment becomes our justifier. Abraham, as we sung this morning, had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. Abraham believed God. It was reckoned to him as something more than belief was reckoned to Him as righteousness. The very power of God on display. Friends, faith is not powerful in itself. People have faith in all sorts of things that makes absolutely no difference in the final analysis. The power of faith lies in the One in whom we have faith in. Lies in God Himself. And having been justified through the gift of faith, then we rejoice. We boast in the hope that God gives us even in the midst of incredible circumstance. For we were dead. You want to talk about an incredible circumstance. I like what you said. Not one foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel. You know, I'll, I'll give you credit the first three or four times I say it. That's the old preacher's trick, right? Jim said and then someone said and then it's just yours after that, right? Man, you want to talk about incredible circumstance. We were dead. Dead. Born in the image of Adam from dust to dust. In Christ, we died. In order that in Christ, we may live. Friends, a Christian is nothing less than one who by the supernatural and miraculous power of the Spirit of God has been baptized with Christ, who has been joined to Him in His death, buried with Christ in order that they may be risen with Christ by the glory of the Father. This is not a euphemism. This is, this is, this is not some kind of airy, fairy High in the sky, wishful thinking. This is a spiritual reality. That we may rise with Him and by the glory of the Father walk in the newness of life. Those who are both slaves and free, obedient to the standard of God, yet an obedience that springs not from outside of us, but from inside of us, an obedience that comes from the heart because God has an enslavement in the Gospel to righteousness that is unlike enslavement to anything else. This is the Gospel that Paul proclaims to Rome. A profound identity of life from death, 
of calling into existence that which did not exist, so that we might be buried with Him in death, in order that we may be raised with Him in life. For this to occur, the law was necessary. A law that caused transgression to increase and yielded nothing less than death itself. Paul said, as we looked last week in Romans chapter 7, verse 5, for while we were living in our flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members. It was at work in our members to bear fruit for death. For Paul had already told us in Romans chapter 4, verse 15, the law brings wrath. Where, is, where there is no law, there is no transgression. The reality, the reality of the law is that it, by the desires of men, shows men what they truly are. Friends, we should not be fixated on the law today as though we were Pharisees. We should be concerned with the law as those who have been given grace in order that we may have died to it. You can't have salvation without it. For men must die. In Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 12, Paul says it this way What shall we say then? That the law is sin? Not being. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but the commandment came and sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy. And the commandment is holy. And righteous. And good. Now often today, especially in light of what we see in the New Testament, particularly with Jesus and His dealings with the Pharisees, the concept of law in any manner is often sort of a taboo subject in the midst of the church, but it shouldn't be. The law is critical. And this is not a new thought. Paul is dealing with this in the midst of the first century church. He says, what are we going to say then? He says, if, if the nature of the law is that simply by telling you God's character and what transgression is, it causes you to actually go out and perfect your sinfulness in transgressing more. Paul uses the example of covetousness. He said, man, I wouldn't even have a concept that coveting is evil if Scripture hadn't told me it was. And as soon as it told me that it was, that I went out and just coveted everything that I could. So then, producing transgression in me is the law itself. Sin, and Paul says, not being. Not by no means. Once again, not being. That is not the nature of the law. When it comes to sin and transgression, the two are closely related, but they're not the same thing. 
Scripture defines sin as being anything that is contrary to the character of God. A character that is infinite. That much of which today is a mystery that we will not understand until we see Christ face to face. And yet sin is sin. Whether you know it or not. But the law codifies sin. It brings a proclaimed standard by which we might transgress and see our sin for being utterly sinful. Paul tells us very clearly that the problem with men and the law does not lie in the law. That's not where the problem is at. It's not that the law is sinful. The problem's not the law. I mean, if you want to look at the very first law that was ever given to men, the most simple law that was ever given to men was given in the Garden of Eden when God simply told Adam and Eve that there is one rule, that there is one standard. You may eat of any tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Let's look today in Genesis chapter 3 and verses 1 through 6 because you can't talk about the gospel unless you talk about the fall. You can't talk about being raised with Christ unless you talk about first dying with Christ. In Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 through 6, we see that when it comes to the contention between God's law and men, the problem is not God's law. It's as straightforward as it could be. For the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, there's all sorts of failure there that we don't have time to go into this morning. A dishonest question responded to by a dishonest answer. But the servant said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, something she already knew, was a delight to the eyes, something that was readily apparent and that the tree was to be desired new information to make one wise she took of its fruit and ate she also gave to her husband who was with her and he ate friends the law of God was as simple and straightforward as it can possibly be the problem in Eden was not the law. The problem is men. For Paul continues in Romans chapter 7 and verse 13, and he says, Did that which is good then, did that which is good then bring death to me? Not being. Not being. Is the law sin? No. Did the law 
bring death to me? No. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Paul says the problem when it comes to law and men is not the law. That the law is good and that the law is of the Spirit and it is the codification of a portion of the character of God being revealed to men. There is nothing wrong with the law. What there is something wrong with is man. It's not the law of itself that brings death. It is sin. And if you want to know how insidious sin is, Paul says, look what the law has shown us. It has shown us that sin is sinful. That it is utterly foul. That it is something that is so apart from God. That it is something that is so rebellious in its nature that it even takes that which is good and uses it to bring death problem is not the law. The problem is men were slaves to their own desire. As we looked at three weeks ago, Paul says in chapter 6, verse 16, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey? Either sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. One of the things that the law does in men is it forces us to confront the reality of our own responsibility. When you talk about the sovereign nature of God, you want to talk about sin being utterly sinful and taking something that is spiritual and using it to bring about death. Men will talk often about the sovereignty of God and they will try to use it as an excuse to remove their own responsibility. Not being. Not being. The law makes you look in the mirror. It shows you what the standard is. It takes sin that was hidden and unseen buried deep in your character and codifies it in such a way that the rule is clearly broken. Friends, evangelism needs the law. Evangelism needs the law. There's a reason Paul starts there. Because it's really, really difficult to communicate to people that they need to be saved if they don't understand what they need to be saved from. The law produces responsibility. And when it produces it... Paul is about to take us there testimonially. Like he's going to speak about his own experience with this. And believe you me, he understood the law better than all of us in this room put together. He's about to take us there testimonially. And the reality is, is when the law does what God designed the law to do, to show sin in a person. This isn't theoretical. This is about the use and the means 
when it shows sin to be utterly sinful, it is a traumatic and disastrous thing. Scripture talks about the way that the Gospel functions with the law to show us what we are so that we understand our desperate state and what we need to be saved from. It talks about that interaction as the call. John chapter 14, verses 15 through 17, Jesus is talking to His disciples, eleven of which will soon be apostles. And they are not born again yet. They know all sorts of stuff about the law. As a matter of fact, they know more about the fullness of the law than any other men that have come before them. They have been walking with Jesus for years at this point, the one who came to fulfill the law. But they're not born again yet. The Spirit is not in them. They have not become obedient from the heart, which is going to be very clear on the night of the crucifixion. And Jesus says this to him. He says, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. The Spirit whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, you know Him, for He dwells with you and He will be in you. And so here is the condition of these men who have been set apart from before the foundation of time as the elect of Jesus Christ. These guys' names have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life since from before the existence of the space-time continuum. Now that's a wild concept in my mind. And here they are, and Jesus says, okay boys, here's the deal. Things are about to change. And I mean, they're going to change. Something out of nothing. Life out of death. Flesh out of dust. The children of God out of the children of Adam. Man, it's going to change. And here's the way it's going to change. It's going to change when the Lord sends His Holy Spirit to unite you with Christ in death that you may therefore be united with Him in a resurrection unto life. And here's the thing. When He comes, the world's not going to have a clue. Man, they're not going to get it. They neither see Him nor know Him. You'll know Him. You'll know Him. And here's why you'll know Him. Because He's already with you. But He's going to be in you. So here's your condition right now. There's the condition of the world. They don't have a clue about the Spirit. He has nothing to do with them. Here's your condition. It's not what it's going to be. There's a day when the Holy Spirit is going to be in you, but that day is not today. But when it happens, you will be familiar with what's going on because even though He's not in you right now, He is already currently with you. He's already dealing with you. He's already showing you through the law and what Christ says about it and the way He's fulfilling it. 
So that when Christ looks at His apostles and says, Yeah, but who do you say I am? Peter can say, By the Holy Spirit, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it be absolutely true, even though the man is not yet saved. Friends, let me tell you something. If you're in that position... It can be a very frustrating place to be. When Paul proceeds into chapter 8, he's going to break down the way that salvation unfolds from eternity to eternity. And in chapter 8, verse 28, Paul writes and says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. And so Paul says this is the way it works. Eternity passed. God was intimate with His people. This isn't head knowledge. This is heart knowledge that's being talked about. He is intimate with His people before. Out of that intimacy, the heart of God acts. And He predestines His people to be called according to His purpose. And man, whatever He wants, He gets. And out of that predestination comes the call of God. The Spirit that is with you that here in just a minute when the justification of God occurs is going to be in you. But there's a place. The same place those apostles were in back in John chapter 14. There's a place that everybody finds themselves when that call of the Spirit is with them and is working and is showing them their death in the law before the call has come to the fruition of justification. It's a hard place to be. It's a hard place to be. The realization of guilt the realization of righteous judgment and yet not yet the realization of grace in Romans chapter 7 verse 15 Paul talks about it like this from his own personal experience For I do not understand my own actions. And this is a guy... I was talking to my dad about this on the phone the other day. You understand, this, the man that is writing this is a certifiable genius. And his genius, his entire life, literally his entire life has been focused on nothing less than the law of God. He has had the best of the best. He's had the best tutors. He's had the best circumstances. 
This is as Ivy League genius as Ivy League genius got in the first century. But without the Spirit in you, the law is nothing but indictment. So here's a man that is infinitely more capable than you or I. And he says, I don't understand myself. I see how it ought to work. It makes perfect sense. It's absolutely logical. And yet I fail at every turn. I do not understand my own actions. For I do do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Friends, the call right before it comes to effective fruition and justification is a gloriously miserable place to be. It's hard to walk through. It is walking. Paul said, wretched man that I am. I see it. I see what I'm supposed to do. There's no reason that I shouldn't want to do it. As a matter of fact, there is a portion of me that does want to do it. This is the nature of the call. It is drawing. It is molding. There's no reason that I shouldn't want to do it again. I don't. And I find myself doing the very things that are despicable and despised to the point that I legitimately hate myself for doing it, and yet I still can't stop. It's a miserable place to be, friends. It's a miserable place to watch people be. You break your heart. Break your heart for them. It has to happen. And if you really love them, if you really love them, if it is the very agape of God that desires with great intention what is best for them, the only way to be raised with Christ is to be put to death with Christ. Man, Paul fought it. And he was zealous. And like so many men that are as gifted as he is, the very thing that would be used by God so powerfully once sanctified was an absolute detriment to him before his conversion. 
It was his own genius. It was his own understanding. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul talked about it like this. In verse 11, he says, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. Here's how it used to be. How I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when He who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by His grace was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. He said, man, I was throwing everything I had at it. I was increasing. I was so zealous for the law. I was blowing the doors off of my contemporaries amongst my people. And this is the same guy that said he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was as good of a lawyer as there was. He says, man, I was blowing their doors off. And all it did was make me worse. Sin showed itself to be sin. Through the law, it became utterly abominable so that it was not leading in any way to righteousness, but exactly the opposite was leading me to destroy the very thing that is righteous in this world. It was leading me to destroy the bride of Christ. Paul says, well, in Acts chapter 7, it describes what Paul is talking about here in Galatians. Stephen was testifying to the men of Israel. He was holding the law up as a, as a reflection that they might see their sin and understand what they need to be saved from. And he said, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and yet did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at Him. But He, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And He said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed together at Him. They cast Him out of the city and stoned Him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man who just happened to be out excelling all of his contemporaries. So zealous was he for the law. They laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. 
And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And then arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except for the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This was his condition. This is the condition that made absolutely perfect sense to him at the time, but in reflection, after being indwelled by the Holy Spirit, said it was maddening. Absolutely maddening. I see the law, I see it's good, all it does is perfect my sin. If the law is good, and yet my sin is being perfected through it, then what does that say about me? Friend, let me tell you something. If that's where you're at, and that's the hell you're living, that's exactly what it's a picture of. Or, if you are ministering and evangelizing someone that is in that position, God works all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. It may be hard. It will be. If it's real, it will be the most difficult thing you ever do. When you listen, there's about three different times, four kind of, sort of. There's three major times in Scripture that Paul gives his own testimony and he talks about the agony of his own sin in coming to Christ as being more difficult for him to deal with than any single thing he would have to do post-conversion. And I mean, the Lord, when He called it, we're going to look at it here in just a minute in Acts. I mean, He talks to Ananias. He says, hey, go down there and talk to this guy. Bring his sight back. Because i got to show him how much he's going to suffer for my name. And Paul never considers the suffering that he does for Christ to be anything like the wretched burden of his own sin. So if you're there, or if you're ministering to someone that is, Friends, it is working for your good. You may not be able to see it. You may not understand it. But I beseech you to hold on and trust God. Hold on and trust God. Because what comes out of the other side is befitting of the travail that was required to produce it. He kills slaves so that they may be free. Praise God, the same one that kills is also the one that makes alive. For Paul, it looks like this. If you got your Bibles with you, let's do this. Let's do Romans chapter 7. You know, with one finger 
right about verse 24. And then we'll do Acts chapter 9, right about verse 1. See if we can get the back and forth here. The, the record of the experience, the statement of the theology. In Acts chapter 9, verse 1, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, to men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said to him, Who are you, Lord? So here he is, going about his way, being as zealous for the lies he can be, it perfecting iniquity and sin in him, that sin may be utterly sinful. In a blinding moment, the call of God comes to Saul. Wretched man that I am. Who are you, Lord? Who will deliver me from this body of death? He said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Man, I think sometimes today we have a tendency to want to let Jesus off as sovereign king. He doesn't have a problem embracing it at all. <laughs> Wretched man that I am. Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Now get up. Go where I tell you and be prepared to hear what I tell you to do. These are the words of life to Him. This is life from death. This is verse 24 into verse 25. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. It was a bumpy road. Required going through the grave. Required looking at yourself and recognizing exactly the wretch you are. It was a bumpy road. It was a rough ride. And it was worth every single moment. Because it ends in rise. For those that are baptized into Christ are baptized into His death in order that they may be joined with Him in His resurrection. The result for Paul is recorded a little bit later in Acts chapter 9 and verse 10 where it says, There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, 
And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias. You come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Have you ever noticed? Maybe it's only true for me. <laughs> you guys may be more righteous than this. You know, you pray, Lord, use me, use me, use me. And then he says, okay, here's what you want to do. And you go, I don't want to go do that. Can't you use me for something else, perhaps? Every time I'm anxious to go, the Lord says, wait. Every time I want to wait, the Lord says, go. If you agreed right off the bat, it wouldn't be sanctification. Right? You thought I was all together like you? I'm nothing like you? So here's what I want you to do. Well, if that's true, then the natural initial response from a man is always going to be, I don't want to do it like that. I don't want to do that. So here's Ananias. Man, God speaks to you. Like, speaks to you. It's a big deal. Man, I can only count, I can count on one hand. I can count on one hand the times that the Lord has spoken to me. Every time it was testimonial stuff. The Lord spoke to me when He called my name. He spoke to me when He called me to the ministry. He spoke to me when He called me to this pulpit. He spoke to me when He called me to my wife. God speaks to you. It's a big deal. This stuff doesn't happen every day. And the Lord speaks to him. Calls him by his name. Gets his attention. He says, alright, what do you have me do? Well, there's this guy named Saul from Tarsus and I struck him blind. It's a long story. He's seen you already in a vision. So at this point in time, you know, it's kind of like we're reaching that Jonah moment where it's, it's implied that like you're, you're going to have to do this or, or die. And I, and I might kill you to get you to do it like I did with Jump because he's already seen it it's done this is going to happen this is ordained and Ananias answered and said Lord I've heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name the Lord said go For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Man, the thing that I love about the Lord when he talks about his purpose is that he is fully committed to it. He's fully committed. You know, he doesn't pat Ananias on the head and go, listen, I know this is hard and I understand that this guy has been doing great violence to your brothers and sisters, which you care very much about, and is himself, a, up to this point, a threat to you. Um, but, but listen, stick with me. I need you to understand. We've got bigger fish to fry. He doesn't do any of that. He just says, yeah, I know who he is. Go. I know who he was. I know what he's going to do. 
I'm going to show him how much he's going to suffer for my name's sake. And as hard as it's going to be, it'll never be as hard as facing his own guilt. Because now, instead of suffering for sin, he'll be suffering for righteousness. Instead of suffering for punishment, he will suffer for reward. Everything is different when God calls to existence that which does not exist. Everything changes when He calls life from death. For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Didn't Paul know it? It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Therefore, the law and the gospel call of God that moves you from guilty under one to justified under the other is of critical and first importance. Reflecting back on his own salvation, Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he says in chapter 15 and verse 3, For what I delivered to you as of first importance is what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then He appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, last of all, as one one untimely born, He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am. His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached. And so you believe. This is the gospel. That by the Spirit 
we're joined with Him in death. That through the law, we see it. What a wretched man that I am. Who will save me from this body of death? Praise be to Jesus Christ. For there is now therefore no condemnation. The Lord is zealous for His purpose. He's always achieving. If you find yourself in that place where the call of God has not yet yielded the justification of God, trust God and hang on. Cry out to the Lord. Cry out who will save me from this body of death. And you will find. When you, you will find that when a promise that is older than time comes to its fruition, that every single moment of travail that led you there was absolutely worth it. You may suffer for His name. But you won't be suffering for punishment. You'll be suffering for reward. You won't be suffering for sin. You'll be suffering for righteousness. And all the glory that comes with it. Come to Christ. Let's pray.